All right, well, here we go. If you don't have it, it's on the screen, Ezra 1, 1 to 4. The word of God reads, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can delve into your word together today. We thank you for what's gone on the past few, you know, four months, whether they've been filled with blessings, filled with struggles. Father, we know when we look back, it'll all be saturated with your goodness. And we praise you and we thank you, Father, for all that, even for all the challenges and all the struggles. And so, God, um, we pray as we enter into this new phase of reading your word in the Old Testament, we pray that you'll reveal yourself to us, your heart to us, who you are to us, so that we would be uh, just gobsmacked in awe, so that we would be humbled, so that we we could celebrate who you are, who you've made us to be, and Father, so that we can find hope and strength to truly be the Christians that you've always designed us to be. We thank you, God, for all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, we are beginning a new series today, you know, and, you know, I, I love going back and forth, but I think ever since I've been here for the past like one and a half years, I've only really kind of preached out of the New Testament. And so I knew that I had to preach an Old Testament book, but you know, like it's difficult for preachers to choose what to preach on, but I decided to preach on Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Are those the first books that you think about when you think about the Old Testament? Maybe not. But uh, I decided to preach in Ezra because it's the story of a people that have been displaced for a while, but they are now returning back to rebuild their lives. And I thought that was kind of appropriate. It kind of feels like that. I mean, we can't compare what they went through to, you know, what we went through in the past three and a half, four months, but it kind of feels like that. And so, and just like I said last week, you know, I kind of believe that this lockdown gave us the opportunity to really examine our lives and maybe to clarify the things that we really value in our lives and to make some appropriate changes so that we can start actually living for what we really value and what we really want to live for in this life. And obviously, as your pastor, I hope that's Christ. And so that's what I hope this will do. And so this journey through Ezra and Nehemiah, I hope it gives you a lot of strength, and I hope it gives you a lot of clarity. I hope it helps you reset your walk with God so that you can build your life or rebuild your life upon Christ alone. Okay? Um out of pure curiosity, who here has heard a sermon series on Ezra before? Raise your hand. Ezra. Who here knows who Ezra is? Raise your hand. Just out of pure curiosity. A few of us. That's, that's cool. You know, we'll get to what these books are about. We'll get to who he is. We'll talk about that soon. Um, but if you didn't know, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book. It was kind of split apart later on, but it was actually one book. So most historians and even most theologians treat Ezra and Nehemiah as one big book, as one big story. If you were to read these two books like sequentially, which it is because it's one big book, 
Um, it's three parallel stories that are very, very interesting. And so I encourage you to go home today, read through Ezra, read through Nehemiah, and just it's one big story in three phases. But there are three parallel stories which are very, very interesting. But before we get to those stories, I'll tell you what those stories are so you can get a, an overview of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, let me set the scene for us. You know, when did Ezra take place? What's happening? Let me explain this to you. Do you guys know your Israelite history? Do you guys know your Old Testament Jewish history a little bit? Maybe. You guys heard of guys like King Saul, big dude, you know, head above the rest, was awesome, but then kind of wasn't that awesome. So King David took over, youngest of nine, best looking, but short, because God is fair, you know, and you know he became the king, you know, he, he was a great, his heart was totally for God, but he also liked women that he shouldn't have been looking at, you know, bathing naked, which I don't know why women do, you know, on top of a roof or something like that. But yet, you know, that happened. You know, and, and so anyway, but God loved him. He was awesome. He had a few kids, one of them, which was Solomon, who was the wisest guy in the world. Solomon, wisest guy in the world, but liked women, like a lot of women. And so because of that, became a little bit confused, like really confused. And so what happened was after the reign of Solomon ended, the kingdom of Israel became divided, Okay, into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And the southern kingdom got, uh, got two tribes, which are Judah and Benjamin. Okay. The northern kingdom, if I were to give you a brief history of the northern kingdom, there were 20 kings basically of the northern kingdom. They were all evil. None of them followed after God. So because of that, God decided we're going to put an end to the northern kingdom. So he sent the Assyrians in 722 BC to take over. Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and that's what happened. The southern kingdom, they had about 20 kings as well. About five of them feared the Lord. Fifteen of them were pure evil. And because they were less evil, kind of, God waited another, uh, like God gave them 150 years extra before in 586 BC, the Babylonians came and took them over. What made the Babylonians a little bit different was they took the Jews and they decided to export them or exile them back to Babylonia. And so that's where the Jewish people were for about 60 or 50 years. So between the Babylonian exile and the first chapter of Ezra, it's about 50 years. So about one generation of people. Okay. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of Ezra chapter one. Now, one thing I want you to understand before we move on with the story is, why does God do that? You know, why does God have the Assyrians take over the northern kingdom? Why does God have the Babylonians take over the southern kingdom? Is it because they were evil? Well, yes and no. I mean, we're all evil. We all, you know, obey God sometimes. We all don't obey God other times. But yes, but it's not because it's a punishment. But really, it's a harsh discipline. You know, God, all God ever wanted from his people is for us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and being. That's it. The greatest commandment in all of Scripture. All God ever wanted from His people was for us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength so much that we express that love to everybody else here on this earth. It really is that simple. That's all God ever truly wanted from us. And so His people, that's all they were supposed to be, and that's all they were supposed to do, but they just didn't want to. They just wanted to live for themselves. They didn't want to live for God. You know, and so God's like, hey, come on, guys, you know, be my people. You're supposed to be the city on this hill. 
You're supposed to be the salt and white, the light that, you know, shines the kingdom to this whole earth. And I'm going to use you guys so powerfully to shine my glory. But they're like, nah, I'd rather live for myself. And because of that, God decides to discipline them. And hopefully, while they're in exile, what all God ever wanted was for them to realize, hey, we had it good when God was our God. But now that we're here in exile and we lost everything, wow, we didn't realize how much God was looking out after us. We didn't realize that life really was about him. And it is about him. And we really should make it about him. And that's what discipline does. It's kind of harsh. But this is a godly discipline that God enacted here. And so, you know, as they, you know, it was kind of like that for me too. I don't know if it was like that for you. You know, I think in lockdown, I kind of shared with you a little bit last week. When I was in lockdown, I kind of realized all the idols that I had been truly worshiping within my life that I was maybe too cowardly to face up to, you know, when things are going good. But when you're stripped of all those things and you realize some of those things, hopefully you can repent of those idols and just make your God, make your life about God alone. And my guess, and hopefully I assume, is that these Jewish people in exile in Babylonia realized some of the same things, right? So, uh, 50 years later, all of a sudden God speaks. What happened? Okay, what happened in those 50 years? The Babylonians took over the, the Israelites, exiled them back to Babylonia. Uh, that kingdom fell to the Medes and the Persians, who are now led by this king, Cyrus. And then Cyrus, all of a sudden, hears from God, and he... Uh, and the Jews love it because King Cyrus is a much more enlightened king. He's a much more tolerant king. And what's great about Cyrus is that he wanted his people to be happy. He didn't care if he took over all these other nations. He actually wanted all those nations to be happy. So he decided to make this decree to return all the people that were once taken over to return back to their lands. And he also wanted them to restore their religions. He wanted their gods to be restored back. To them. So it's really amazing. And that's where we begin the story of Ezra. And those are the first four verses that I read to you today. We're never going to reference those today. Okay. So do you guys understand where we are and how this story came about? I hope so. Um, what I'd like to do now is I want, I told you that there were three parallel stories in Ezra and Nehemiah. I kind of want to share those stories with you because I think it's good to get a big picture of what these books are actually saying and kind of like the feel of these books before we start to study it uh, in depth. So once again, there's three stories. Here's the first story. The first story has to do with um, the rebuilding of the temple. God speaks to King Cyrus. King Cyrus is like, you want to know something? We need to rebuild the temple. We need to get the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, but especially the temple. And so he um, he gives this edict saying, hey, any of you Jews in my kingdom, if you want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, you're free to go. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But for those who did, the, the person who led them was a spiritual leader. He was the governor of Israel called Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Anyone know Zerubbabel? Big guy. Okay. Zerubbabel was the governor of Israel. He was the spiritual leader and political leader of Israel at the time. So he leads the Israelites back to Jerusalem and they begin work to rebuild the temple. What happened? They go back there. They start to rebuild the temple. But then the, the Jews that were there who were never exiled, they were like, hey, we want to help you rebuild the temple. But Zerubbabel was like, no, we don't need your help, even though you're Jews. And so all of a sudden there's this conflict and um, it, it doesn't get resolved very cleanly. But then they're like, it's okay, let's just try to rebuild the temple. And so they lay the foundations and they kind of succeed, but it just feels awkward. That's the first story, okay? 
Here's the second story. 60 years later, another decree, you know, comes and Ezra, who is the priest of Israel at the time in Babylonia, feels the call of God to go to Jerusalem because he feels like, hey, the people that have been living there for the past like 60 years, they don't have your word. The temple was rebuilt, but they don't, they're not living as a godly society. So Ezra the priest feels his burden to go back to Jerusalem, takes another bunch of people back to Jerusalem and starts to give him the word. And he's like, look, I'm here to, you know, to implement like social justice. I, I want to give you God's laws and God's rules so that we could become the people of God once again. But, but the, the problem is when he gets to Israel or when he gets to Jerusalem, all of a sudden he realizes that, hey, all these Jews have intermarried with everybody else around them. I can't even tell who's a Jew and who's not a Jew anymore. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. And the people are like, hey, maybe we should have everyone get divorced. And we'll just have the pure Jews remain pure Jews. And he's like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And so that's what he tries to do. Does it work? No, it doesn't quite work. It kind of works, but it doesn't quite work. And the story ends. Okay? That's the second story. Awkward. The third story is, is the book in Nehemiah. Those two, those two take place in Ezra. The third takes place in Nehemiah. Nehemiah then lead, realizes, hey, if, it, if you want Jerusalem to be a real city, you need to be protected, right? Because anyone can attack. And back then, those societies, nations attacked all the time. So why don't we go back and let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and that's exactly what he does. So he comes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. But the problem is he's rebuilding these walls. But there's opposition from, once again, from the Jewish people who were there previously and from people outside as well, to the point where they get so angry that they're fighting. There's a verse where it says that the Jews were like literally stacking bricks with one hand and fighting with the sword in the other. That's literally what was happening at that time. So they met a lot of opposition, but somehow, some way, they got through it. And, but what they realized through it all was that, hey, I think the nation of Israel is pretty messed up. So what they do, what Ezra and Nehemiah do is they decide to call a seven day revival meeting. And in the seven days, all they do is preach. All they do is worship. All they do is sing. All they do is pray. And it's absolutely awesome to the highest level. And so you think, man, they got everything fixed. But then Nehemiah, once again, ends on, ends on a very sad note. Nehemiah's walking around the city, and he's like, oh, man, I'm sure people have changed, right? But he's walking around, and he looks at the temple. The temple's like getting all dilapidated. Like nobody cares anymore about this building. And then all of a sudden, he's walking around, and, he, and he's seeing all this unfaithfulness, sinfulness happen. You know, so basically, he concludes, oh, man, people don't really care about the law of God. People don't really care about Scripture. And then all of a sudden, he goes to the walls, and the walls that were supposed to protect the city of God, all of a sudden, is, using, is being used as a marketplace, especially on the Sabbath. And he's absolutely crushed. And the book ends. Right? Great, right? What... That's why we're studying this book. Eddie, why are we studying these books when it's so depressing? Why are these books even in the Bible? And, you know, it's, it's really, really funny because um, to me, the books like Ezra and Nehemiah are the reason why I love the Old Testament. Much more than the New Testament. New Testament's awesome. Don't get me wrong. 
But the reason why I love the Old Testament is because the stories in the Old Testament are always stories of extremely flawed men and women whose greatest asset is that they love God or somehow are trying to love God. Or maybe more importantly, that these flawed, extremely flawed men and women are people that God absolutely loves and will never leave and constantly is wooing back to him. That's what I love. About. And through those stories of these extremely, extremely flawed men and women, what we get to see is who God is. And what we get to see is how God deals with his people, especially not only when they do really great things, but especially in their blunders, you know? And that's why I love reading the Old Testament. You know, we get to see what his heart is, what his true desires are. We get to see what he really wants to accomplish through the hearts of his people. We get to really see what's most important to him. Like God becomes real, but God becomes a person. God becomes relatable, you know, and that's what I love about the Old Testament. And I hope you love that as well. And especially as we go through the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And maybe the greatest thing that we get to realize if you read Genesis to Malachi enough, is that what you realize through all that, through the complete unfaithfulness of his people over and over and over and over and over again, what you see more clearly the more often you read it is how God never stops pursuing his people. And what he's pursuing is not just, hey, I want you to be my people, but it's like, hey, I created you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and being. And I'm never going to give up until that happens between us. And that's it. And so what you realize and what you get convinced of from Genesis is, is that from Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of God pursuing each one of us and working in our lives and wooing us and constantly wanting us to be his completely until we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and being so much that we'd want to express that to each other on this earth. And because sin is the most major, is the major reason why that doesn't happen, that's why he sent Jesus. And that's why Jesus really is the answer to all of our life's woes. Do you understand? That's the story of Scripture. Okay? And you know, we're, and we're going to see all that. We're going to see all that as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah together. And so, what's the whole point of today? So I just want to, I want to give you one big picture point that I wanted to share with you uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's this. Uh, the big picture point that I want to share with you is this. This is the whole lesson of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's this. Make worship your life. Okay? Make your life all about worship. Okay? You know, the first story that takes place in Ezra is the rebuilding of the temple. And the first, and, and, and what's, and what's awesome about that is that that is the first thing that God wants them to do when they go back to Jerusalem. But it doesn't really make sense on a practical level, does it? Like when you establish a new city, what should you be doing? You should be building houses. You should be building roads. You should be building schools. You should be building marketplaces or things like that, right? So that people can actually function and live. But God says, no, I need you to build a temple first. And that's so awkward. It's so weird, right? It doesn't make practical sense as a human being living on earth, but it makes absolute spiritual sense. And this is the reason why, because what he's telling to them once again, just like you should have realized in Babylonia, that worship is your greatest need. Our greatest need in life, believe it or not, 
is worship. And we'll get to what worship is in a second or two, right? And, and when you think about them, what people needed the most as they reclaimed their lives, what people needed most to be successful and to flourish in this new life and in this new reality, what people needed most to have true joy, peace, and satisfaction is the worship of God. Not Christianity, not religion, not the institution of the church, but worship. And when I mean, when I say worship, what I mean is the genuine heart to heart adoration of God, personal adoration of God. That genuine heart to heart thankfulness that you personally have to God. The kind of worship, that kind of worship reveals God to us, right? It reveals his love. It reveals his holiness. It reveals his awesomeness, his grandeur. And the greatest thing about that kind of worship is that it convinces us that all of life and all of our lives are to be about him and him alone, right? It teaches us how much we truly need him. So our greatest need is to be found in him, is to be consumed by him, and it's to be an offering for him. Our greatest need is true heart worship. Do you guys see that? That's the point for today. You know, the truth behind all of these stories is that you can rebuild a temple, you can rebuild a church, you can rebuild a community, you can rebuild a society, a society, you can even rebuild walls around a city. But unless your heart for God is rebuilt, all the other stuff is rubbish. And that's what we need to be convinced, you know? Unless our hearts for God are truly rebuilt, everything else in life is rubbish. God wants love, right? He wants true love, not just love received, true perfect love, love received from God in us, but love given back to him and expressed to others. That's worship. And until we get to the point where we truly believe that we need that in our lives more than air itself, then we will always be continually trapped in spiritual lockdown, right? The reason why we will never be free, the reason why we never experience God to the, you know, all these oomph, you know, uh, degrees is because we refuse to let worship become our greatest need. We're not convinced, but we need to be, you know? Coming back to church is great. And I talked about this a little bit last week, but coming back to church is great. But one thing I think that we're realizing as we're more honest with ourselves is a lot of times church, as great as it is, probably won't solve some of the issues that went on in your heart or in your mind these past few months. Do you know what I'm talking about? I talked a little bit about that last week. You know, don't get me wrong. Church is great. We need each other to encourage each other, to empower each other so that we can live for God. But the only thing that's going to heal the things that maybe went in, went in on your heart or went in on your mind, those types of things, the only thing that's going to heal those things and give you true peace, peace and resolution is God himself. The worship of God himself, God himself are the only things that's really going to resolve those things that went on. You know, we need God personally. And, and worship is not where, like a destination, not just the destination that we need to get to, but worship is the vehicle that will get us there, 
right? I'll explain in a second. Why? Because worship centers our hearts on God. Worship directs our hearts to seek God and to enjoy God. Worship deepens our faith and understanding of God. And worship helps us lock onto and stabilizes our trajectory towards God, right? Worship is so necessary in all that we do. Worship leads to worship. Worship deepens our worship. Worship purifies our worship. And I want to give you an example of what I mean rather than just saying worship 10,000 times. Now, this example that I'm about to share with you, it's an example about worshiping at church, right? Because maybe that's the easiest to access. But you can take any of these principles, you can take any, you can take whatever part of this story you wish and apply it to, you know, your workplace. You could apply it to, you know, your classrooms. You can apply it, you know, to your relationships. Okay. But that's all I want to say, you know, whenever I, whenever I rock up to church, there are so many times when I come to church and I'm reminded of God in a good way, because it's church, but I'm also reminded of God in a bad way. I mean, and, and this is all my testimony and it, this is something I still struggle with. And the bad way is this. Sometimes I'll rock up to church and I could be working for God all week, but I'll rock up to church and I'll be like, oh my God, I didn't think about you at all this week. Oh my goodness. When I'm really honest with myself. All I did was sin all this week and not even care. Oh my goodness, I didn't have a quiet time. I didn't even have one heart-to-heart conversation with you. I prayed prayers before I ate, but I didn't really pray because I didn't really talk to you. You know, And I realize that when I sit down. And that happens a lot. And then here's what happens right after that. And a lot of times when I realize those things, in the, and I'm like, oh, wow. And this is what I feel. I feel disqualified to worship. Have you, are you guys like that? Maybe you're not as demented as I am. But I feel disqualified to worship. I feel unworthy to sing songs that are positive. I feel unworthy to sing songs of praise. You know, I feel unworthy to sing anything or to do anything good or godly because I know how unfaithful I've been. I don't know. Hopefully none of you can, can relate to any of those things. You know, but that's how I feel sometimes. And so the questions that I, I've grown to ask over the many years is, you know, how am I supposed to genuinely worship God knowing how sinful I am? How am I supposed to genuinely worship God knowing how messed up I am or knowing how far away from God I am? You know, what if I had a, re- I had a really bad week? I had a very difficult week. And now, quite if I'm very honest, I'm filled more with doubts than I am with confidence in who Christ is and maybe in my security and my salvation and all these things. How can I worship genuinely in the midst of all that? And even if I do want to do that, where do I start? How do I solve this problem? Have any of you asked those questions or have been found in those situations? And I hope not, but maybe you have, just like me. Well, um, Jesus actually has the answer to all these questions. Whew. He does. And I want to share this with you. And I want to share some of his words with you. And I hope as I share this verse, these verses with you, it becomes a hope and a strength. And it actually becomes a very practical help to make worship a part of your everyday life and all that you do. Let's go to John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. This is what it says. Jesus says, Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So here, what is God saying? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that God is looking for two things 
in a worshiper. And the first is this. He's looking for a person, a worshiper who worships in the spirit. Okay, so what does that mean? Let me just, here, here we go. The emphasis here when he says that is he's looking for genuineness and sincerity. The genuineness, the genuineness and sincerity that can only come from a true believer in Christ. Why can you can only come from a true believer in Christ? Because the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in us. Okay? And so therefore, we're connected to God. And the Spirit of God is in us. And so what God wants is this marriage between us and the Spirit so that we can be genuine and sincere and honest. If this Holy Spirit is within us, one-third of the Trinity is in us, what good is it to be fake? Did you ever sing fake? Did you ever pray fake? Did you ever do Christianity fake? There's no reason for us to be fake whatsoever at any time. There's no reason for us not to be completely honest, completely genuine, completely sincere. The God is in us. And so... What he's saying is, because God's in you, because the Holy Spirit's in you, be honest, be genuine, be sincere. God knows. God understands. Right? There's no, you can't fake him out. Right? You're not fooling anybody. So be honest. He wants us. And he wants us to move as one with the Spirit so that we can worship the Father. What is that? all that saying is, he just wants something deeply personal with us. That's what this is saying. There was a buzzword many years ago. In, in churches where, you know, everyone was seeking this word, this, this thing called intimacy, right? I don't, I don't hear it very often these days, but intimacy used to be a huge buzzword. But that's exactly what God is seeking here. He just wants an intimate, personal, genuine, sincere connection with us. God is looking for worshipers who will worship in that spirit, partnered with the spirit to do that. Do you guys understand that? Right? That's what it meant to worship. That's what it means to worship in the spirit. Secondly, is he's looking for people who will worship in truth. And what that means is that our worship must be based upon the truth of who God is or the truth of what God said. Okay? And God has given us scripture so that we can know truth, so that we can actually worship in truth. And this is huge. And this is a practical thing that we'll get to ourselves. And here's one truth that I always claim, no matter where I am. I, I claim this truth, whether I'm at you know, church or whether I'm at home or whether I, you know, I'm meeting somebody or whatever. And this is the truth. The one truth that I always claim is this. You know, as a believer, God says that we're loved, that we're forgiven, and that we're free, right? That's what we are if we're, belie- if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. All of our sins have been replaced with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's it. At any given time in your life, this is the truth. What that means is that no matter how sinful you might have lived yesterday or this whole past week, no matter how morbidly sinful you might have lived, that sinfulness is nothing compared to the perfect righteousness that covers you, that declares you forgiven, that declares you pure, that declares you free. That is a truth that I think a lot of Asians especially need to learn how to claim every moment of every day in their lives, right? And since that is the truth, what that means is that we can always, always come boldly into the throne room of God and we can worship Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and being. 
And the reason why is not because of our worthiness in any way, but it's because of what Christ accomplished for us upon the cross that declares us forgiven, that declares us free, that declares us pure. We have no right to go into the throne room of God on our own ever. But because we have faith in Jesus and Christ cleanses us with his righteousness, now God says we have every right, no matter what you did yesterday, because it's all because of Jesus that we have a right to come in. Do you understand? This is the truth that you need to declare over yourself all the time. Because the evil one's always going to try to manipulate that one in your heart and in your mind. We can always worship God with all that we have because of what Christ accomplished. Yes, what you did was you know, horrid. Yes, how we lived was horrid. But that's nothing compared to the perfect righteousness of God. And that's what we claim. And that's what we put our faith in. And that's what gives us the ability to worship with all that we have. Do you guys understand? You know, sometimes I believe that the church has wrongly emphasized or maybe misproportionately emphasized how we feel about our worship over the truth of what Jesus accomplished for the, for us so that we can worship. Do you guys understand that? Right? And this is what, this is what I mean. Because I think when we don't worship in truth, our worship becomes a little bit skewed and demented. And this is what I mean. Um, this is, I still struggle with this. Um, so many times we make our worship about how we feel right now before God, right? And the bottom line sometimes is if I don't feel like worshiping, if I feel bad about myself, or if I feel like it's not right, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. So I'm not going to do it. Do you understand what I'm talking about? It's very natural. Um, but you have to realize how rubbish that is. Because that's not worshiping according to spiritual truth. That's, that's worshiping according to how you feel. You know what I'm saying? That's not putting faith in what Jesus did for you upon the cross. That's putting faith and trust into how you feel and the way you judge yourself, right? Because you can worship him because of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And that's what we need to learn to practice But the reality many times is, you know, we realize those things, but we're not turned off. We want to worship, but we're so messed up and we know how sinful we are. But our hearts are so far away from God that a lot of times we don't know how to, you know, these songs are great, but it just doesn't match. my The words in my heart, they're not matching up. You know, I don't feel like I'm actually worshiping God. I'm just singing words. I want my heart to move, but I don't know how to make it move. I don't know how to get there. You know, and so what do we do? A lot of times we put ourselves to say, okay, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to put myself in the mind space and the heart space in a place where I can actually worship God better. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to like, uh, just repent. I'm just going to repent for whatever sin I can think of. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to review this whole week of all the sinfulness. I'm just going to repent. I'm sure if I say all the things in detail of all the ways I messed up, I'm sure something will get better. You know, if I just claim Jesus over all the sins, I'm sure Something's going to get better. Something will get fixed, you know? And then all of a sudden, we do that enough for like five minutes or ten minutes. And because our faith is based on feelings instead of truth, all of a sudden, we can start to convince ourselves that, hey, since I feel bad enough about the things that I just lifted off, listed off for the past five minutes, or because I actually just feel bad enough about those things, then that must, that, that must be what God means by a broken and contrite spirit. That must, that, that's what God means, right? When he says that we are, that, that's humbling myself, isn't it? Right? 
And then all of a sudden, since we have that, and we, since we convince ourselves that we have that, all of a sudden, we feel like we've done enough of these religious acrobatics to possibly merit or warrant the approval of God over us. And so therefore, we're like, okay, I did it, I did it, I did it, yeah, I did it, I did enough. So now, and I know Jesus forgave me, so okay, hey, I'm going to sing these songs now, and I feel better about myself. Do you guys ever do that? I hope not. I've been doing that for the past 30 years. I still do it today because I'm so jacked up. But you got to understand how rubbish that is, right? It really is. Because the reality is that's actually self-worship. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, make titles, but I am. You know, that's actually self-worship. Why? Because all we're thinking about is ourselves. All we're thinking about is how we feel. All, all we're concentrating on is how we judge our unworthiness or how we judge our worthiness. You know, we're making a judgment upon our own humility, our own contriteness. And it's all about us, right? And that's not worship. Well, it is worship. It's self-worship. But the thing is, don't do stuff like that. Why? Because your walk with God will never change. Because you're basing your whole faith upon yourself, upon your own performance, upon what you can do to get yourself out of a bad situation. And that's so anti-gospel if you've ever heard it. You know what I'm saying? Don't ever do that. You will never grow. You will never truly know God. You will never flourish in Him and in His truth when you practice your faith like that. You will never be free because you are continually making yourself the center instead of Christ and His truth. Do you guys understand this? So, what we need to do practically is present that truth. It's hard to believe. Jesus, I know I jacked it all, all up this whole week, but your truth says that I'm forgiven. You, Because of what Jesus Christ accomplished upon the cross, you say that I have every right to walk, walk into your throne room. I feel guilty about that, but you said it's the truth, so I'm going to do it, and you should do it. You need to learn how to walk in truth, right? And the more you do, God's going to change your heart as you walk in truth, and the truth will set you free. And you're going to start to realize, hey, man, this is what God means. And God will start to reveal himself to you and you'll start to grow. And you'll understand what true humility is because you'll be blown away by him. You know, it's not something you can conjure up or create for yourself. But this is how God wants you to walk in truth. To worship in truth is to come humbly before Christ and realize that he is truly, truly is the son, the God of the universe. You know, he's the son of God, the God of the universe. He's huge. He's awesome. He's amazing. And yes, we are sinners, Right? We are a sinner compared to him, but his righteousness has completely cleansed us because of all that he accomplished for us upon the cross. So it's all about him. I walk into God's presence, not because of who I am or all the spiritual acrobatics I accomplished, but I can approach him because of what Christ has done for me. I'm banking on everything that Christ has accomplished through his works, not mine. And that's what I'm going to trust in to worship before God. Right? You don't need to feel right or feel bad enough to worship God. But if you have faith in the truth, our, our hearts and our minds can now start operating in that truth. And that truth will set us free. And whatever we were thinking of or feeling gets comprehensively outshadowed by his worthiness. Right? And that's a choice that Christ wants all of his worshipers to make. To worship in his truth. Do you guys understand this? Truth is so essential to worship. Truth is so essential for us to grow in our worship. Truth is so essential for us to continually know God and to be transformed by him and his spirit so that we can become true worshipers in him. Do you guys understand this? 
Okay, I hope you do. I hope you do. You know, I can't I can't tell you how many times I've come to church and you know, I I catch myself all the time, you know, being a self-worshipper. And I get frustrated, I get angry. Sometimes you see my I'll throw my sermon on the floor sometimes. I'll flop in my chair because I'm so frustrated. I don't want worship to be about me. I don't I've done that for like 20, you know, years. I I I know how frustratingly terrible that is. I want to know God and I want to be about God. And I hope you want that too. So let's learn to present the truth to ourselves and truly operate in the truth. And it's not just singing here at church, but it, it's like are you're preaching. My preaching, it's about, you know, my relationship with my wife. It's about the work, the people that I meet, my neighbors. It's about my driving. I'm, I'm a total evil driver. You know, I, I, everything that I do, it's got to be a worship to him. And that's what we want everything to be about. And that comes through truth. True and spirit-connected worship gets me to the place where my life becomes all about Him. Because the more you live like that, the more you realize that all of life really is about the worship of Christ. Right? And that's where we want to go. Worship gets me to worship, which is where I always need to be. Worship is what we need most within our lives. Genuine heart-to-heart personal adoration, reference for God is all that we need in our lives to worship. So let's make our lives about worship. You know, if there's anything that we learn from Ezra and Nehemiah is that, you know, we don't need buildings. We don't need walls. You know, we don't need like churches, these physical buildings of these churches. I don't know if God even really wants that. But one thing that we'll always see when we, when we read these books together is that God wants us. God wants you. He wants you sincerely. He created you personally, individually, uniquely. And he wants you. And that's what we're going to see every single step of the way. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and being in a way that extends into the lives of others. And if you are not quite there yet, then good thing you're here at the beginning of our series. And secondly, the way you begin that journey is by worshiping. We worship to become a worshiper, right? Um, Worship is the key. You know, the doors to all the shopping centers, entertainment venues, and restaurants, they've all reopened, and it's absolutely wonderful. But I know a lot of us are a little bit more cautious, aren't we, when we go outside? And it's good, and we should be, because that's the new reality that we live in. Um, I love that when we start reading this book, that the first thing that God tells these believers is to build a temple. And that's the first thing they were supposed to do in their new reality. And I love that because I feel like God is saying is, God's saying to them exactly what he's saying to us. And that's this. You have this chance to rebuild your life upon what really counts. You have this chance to build your life upon what will give you life and give others life. And isn't that what you came to realize during the lockdown, during the exile, that it can be all about me. You can rebuild that. And I hope all of us make that choice. That begins by worship. It continues by worshiping. And it will always end for eternity in the worship of God. And I hope that we all become worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Let's make him our new reality. Let's pray. You know, God says that all of life is about him and him alone. And if you want to make your life about him, it begins with worship. 
talk to him. Be honest with him. Ask him for help wherever you might be. And then ask him to give you the courage to streamline your life, to make it all about him alone. And when you do, that's who you will become. Let's pray. so much you know when we take an honest look at ourselves a lot of times it's hard it's hard to see sometimes it's hard just to see who we are but even when we do get a glimpse of who we are it's not the most encouraging thing but father we thank you for revealing yourself to us so that we might see ourselves clearly through your eyes lord teach us how to worship not according to what we see or feel but to who we trust according to whom we trust and what he accomplished for us upon the cross Lord we pray that you help us to become true worshipers people who worship in spirit and in truth so that our whole lives will be about you and will be for your pleasure and for your glory teach us God how to do that in every area and arena of our lives because we want to make it about you so teach us how to do that we thank you god in jesus name we pray amen